Writings there with Castles. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Brian Gregg, Ben Anderson and Bradley Storer. But uh, the federal government has announced an inquiry into religious educational institutions and anti-discrimination laws. It'll be run by the Australian Law Reform Commission. The Federal Attorney General Mark Dreyfus recently announced it. On the line, we have Brian Gregg from Just Equal. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thank you and hello, Victoria. Brian, let's start with the terms of reference. What can you tell us? Well, the terms of reference are interesting, James, in that they do seem to... They they echo what Albanese said in February. So let's quickly go back to that. In February, when Labor was in opposition and we were just a few months out from the election, Mr Albanese, as opposition leader, issued a statement which said the following, right? So a future Labor government will, one, prevent discrimination against people of faith, two act to protect all students from discrimination on any grounds, and three, and this is the really interesting one, we have to listen to the words here carefully, three, protect teachers from discrimination at work whilst maintaining the right of religious schools to preference people of faith in the selection of staff. That raises, I think, a conundrum. It's, it's, those things don't easily balance, and it raises the question, well, hang on then, if religious schools are allowed to preference people of faith, does that mean that they could say that homosexuality and transgender status and same-sex relationships are against their faith and therefore they can refuse to hire people who are gender diverse or lesbian or gay? And that's the question. And in a worrying sign, it looks like that's kind of the path Labor is going down. And it looks like they've handballed this issue to the Law Reform Commission, the the Australian Law Reform Commission, to try and come up with some solution which deals with that. But at the end of the day, you can't. It's one or the other. Yeah, it does sound like religious cherry-picking. It is. And the interesting thing is that if, if, for example, and we don't... I'm not saying this is what will happen, but if, for example, the end result of this is that Labor says, OK, we're going to introduce a federal law which protects teachers at work, so that means existing teachers, those already employed. So if there are LGBT teachers already employed, they will be protected. But we're going to put up the fence, we're going to put up the wall to any future LGBT teachers coming in so that faith schools, publicly funded faith schools, can say, look, we do have a couple of gay teachers on staff. We, we can't get rid of them. We're not going to. But when they leave or retire or move on, we won't replace them. Uh, because we can now prevent them at the recruitment process, the application process. So the end result of that will just be a slow purge of all LGBT teachers from publicly funded faith schools. And I think that's deeply worrying. But the other thing in relation to that is that if that, if, capital I, capital F, if that is what Labor, federal Labor is going to do, then they come up, they come in conflict with existing laws in the state of Tasmania, existing laws in the state of Victoria, and proposed laws in my home state of WA. So that raises the question, are we going to have some kind of federal override of three existing state laws? I think that's highly unlikely. So it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of response the, the Australian Law Reform Commission can come up with. 
It sounds like Mark Dreyfus is looking for some kind of, you know, legal Houdini act. Uh, and that's why he's referred it to the Australian Law Reform Commission to run it as opposed to a Senate inquiry. Oh, look, Labor frequently refers to law reform commissions, both at a state and federal level, when it wants to kind of distance itself from difficult proposals. And then when the proposals come out, they say, oh, look, this is what's been proposed. Um, so we should do this, or perhaps we shouldn't do that. It's not something they like to do internally. And you see that in the language from the press release that the attorney put out the other day, where he said that um, uh, the... The press release he put out with the terms of reference specified consultation with a range of groups, and they included targeted consultation with religious organisations, the education sector, unions, legal experts, and other civil society representatives. And that last bit really catches my eye, other civil society representatives. Why can't Labor just come out and say LGBT groups? Because that's what we're talking about. And my concern is that this is federal Labor, the government being shy, being coy and not prepared to be front-footed on this issue and actually state what the discrimination is and what needs to be addressed. It is a very strange way of putting it, isn't it? Other civil society representatives. I suppose they're keeping the door open for really any group to be consulted, including perhaps um, some groups that may have uh, an agenda that's contrary to the LGBTIQ community's agenda. But it is a very odd way to put it. Yeah, I mean... Let's be clear about this. The, there are there is a range of discrimination which faith schools can and do engage in. So uh, they include things like discriminating against people in de facto relationships or single mothers, for example, um, uh, and of course uh, lesbian, gay, and trans teachers and students. But it is overwhelmingly the latter. It's 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 us. It's our community. It's it's our cohort which overwhelmingly is the victim most often of this discrimination and persecution. And the fact that Labor, the, the government, is tiptoeing around this, they're saying they're having an inquiry into discrimination in schools, they're actually saying what the fundamental problem is, is for me just a little unnerving because that suggests that they're trying to flag to religious conservatives that they're still on their side. That, you know, by not naming and shaming the problem... Um, it draws attention to the fact that Labor is still, it would seem, uncomfortable with this issue and uncertain of how to address it. Uh, and my, I, I come increasingly to the view, as I think more and more on this issue, that we should just remove all religious exemptions, period. There's no need for them. Uh, Tasmania did that 25 years ago. So we already have the state example of that happening. And, and we're going through this torturous process of, of trying to you know, um, count the number of angels on a pinhead, as it were, to try and work out what's going on. Just stop it. I mean, these are publicly funded organisations, publicly funded institutions, and I think there is a community expectation that they should adhere to basic human rights and anti-discrimination provisions. And that means no discrimination, period. Don't pick on the kids, don't pick on the teachers, and don't stop them from applying for jobs. And, and the religious schools will say, but this is about freedom. This is about freedom of religion, to which I would say, well, in that case, then you're not entitled to public funding. If you want to do this privately, if you want to establish a private school with your church funds and raising corporate monies and raising fees from the kids, go ahead, do whatever you like, discriminate in any way you like, but be a completely, totally private organisation. But 
don't stick your hand so deeply into the public purse, taking hundreds of millions of dollars from the taxpayers, and then say you want to be excluded from anti-discrimination laws. I don't think the Australian voters support that at all. Brian, do you think they're not using the words, the letters LGBTIQ, because they don't want the debate to be framed around that because they don't want it to be, you know, another chapter of uh, God versus the gays? I do, but I, I come from it from a slightly different perspective. I think your observation is right. But, but what I think is really happening here is that, remember, this, is, this inquiry is, I believe, a precursor. This is setting up the stage for what comes next, and that's Labor's religious discrimination bill. That's not dead. Let's not forget that. Labor went into the last election stating very clearly that they supported a religious discrimination bill. They didn't support the precise one that Morrison, the former PM, put up. But remember, they voted for chunks of it in February of this year, including sections that they said that they would oppose. They betrayed our community when they said they wouldn't override, they wouldn't support any laws that override existing protections, and then they did exactly that. Um, But at the end of the day, that bill uh, was withdrawn by Morrison when it became clear that it wouldn't pass the Senate because of the Liberal moderates, and the whole thing fell over. And the Australian Christian lobby put pressure on the opposition, now in government, and said, well, what are you going to do if you're in government? And Albanese said, we will introduce a religious discrimination bill. So they are still dedicated to doing that. But they need to sort out this issue of religious schools and the extent to which they should be allowed or not to discriminate against teachers and students. So this is setting the groundwork for that. So it really is part of a long game strategy, isn't it, Brian? And if that's the case, and it makes perfect sense what you're saying, this could be the first of several inquiries. uh, Well, I don't know about that, but my, my instinct is that this inquiry will not produce anything satisfactory because it can't. You either say to religious organisations, look, you you cannot discriminate against LGBT teachers in your recruitment and employment processes. You just can't. You can't discriminate against people on the grounds of race or disability or sex, um, and you can't do it on the grounds of, of sexuality or gender identity. You just can't, period. That's it. Or you say to religious schools, okay, we will give you a special exemption so that you can. But either way... Labor is going to uh, upset, annoy and anger a, a different base, a different section. Um, the only state, as I say, which has satisfactorily resolved this issue is Tasmania, a quarter of a century ago, where they introduced a law that said, no, you cannot discriminate against people at the recruitment and employment process on the grounds of you know, uh, sexuality and gender identity. You can only do it on the basis of religion. So schools can uh, filter out people on the basis of their religion but, and it's very clear, there's a caveat in the Tasmanian law that says, but you cannot use religion as an excuse or a cover to discriminate against LGBTI people. So, and Brian, that, the uh, reality is they could just legislate without this inquiry, couldn't they? They could quite easily come absolutely. up with legislation. Absolutely. Very, very simple. And as I say, it's, it, it gets complicated when the Fed's the federal government is looking at a, a, a national law to deal with this when we already have two state-based laws that deal with it and a third coming down the pipeline. Um, and you can probably include Queensland in that as well. I mean, the law up there is, is a little clunky. It could be clear it's a little clunky, but it's been effective in stopping City Point uh, School in Brisbane in, in, in their attack, twofold attack on students there. And, and the City Point example is, is 
precisely what we're looking at here because you remember that more recently what they've done is they tried to get students and I think parents to sign a document saying that they prescribed to the school's values and those values included not recognising same-sex relationships and not recognising the existence of trans people, saying that God made man and woman and, no, and, and nothing in between. Um, and then the school was trying to say, oh, we're not discriminating against gay, lesbian, trans people. We're just getting people, students and teachers to adhere to the school's values. So they were looking for a loophole. And that is what is, is I, I fear, is embedded in the terms of reference that are now being looked at by the, the, the Australian Law Reform Commission. Brian, will this issue be resolved before the next election? No, I don't believe it will. Uh, I believe the Law Reform Commission will come up with, because it has no choice, will come up with a fairly clunky response saying, well, you could do this or you could do that. or And, oh, by the way, it does get tripped up a bit with what's happening around the States. And I think Labor is just kicking this kicky, this tricky issue down the road in the same way that they did with marriage equality for so many years until it was crunch time. They can't avoid this. Um, you, you either allow publicly funded religious schools special legal exemptions to discriminate against LGBT people, or you don't. That's it. There, there's, no, um, there's no nuance here. Um, and it's not enough simply for Labor to say, we will protect those LGBT uh, teachers at work, those currently employed. They can't be sacked or discriminated against or dismissed. We will protect them. But we will throw up the shutters and not allow, and, and, and rather allow publicly funded faith schools to employ any more. I don't think that sends the right message, and I don't think the Australian electorate would tolerate that. So, Brian, it really is Groundhog Day, greatest hits and memories, kicking the can down the road. How many times have we been down this path on LGBTIQ law reform? Look, it's a rhetorical question, but, gee, it's a familiar pattern. It is, and, of course, what so much of... One of the factors here we, we need to be cognizant of is that Mr Albanese is, of course, from Sydney. He's, he, I think he's a very Sydney-centric person, a very New South Welsh person in terms of his political thinking. Uh, doesn't, in my view, necessarily have a broad um, Australia-wide view on these issues. And, of course, the politics of this in Sydney is very different to everywhere else because Sydney is the most conservative state and it has the largest number of electorates that voted no to marriage equality in 2017. Um, and all of those seats are just sort of on the outer urban areas around Sydney and a big ring around Sydney. Um, and they're dominated by multi-faith, multicultural communica um, communities. And Labor is always trying to maintain those seats and or win those seats. And the politics of that plays out into LGBT issues nationally. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, as I say, your state of Victoria has addressed this issue. Tasmania has addressed this issue. Queensland has largely addressed this issue. And Western Australia plans to do it within the next year. Uh, the attorney, our state attorney, uh, Mr Quigley, is already on record as saying that this is the path he wants to go down. He's, he has effectively said we want to copy or, or echo what they've done in Victoria. So why is federal Labor struggling with this? Well, the answer to that comes back to the fact that federal Labor is more conservative than state-based Labor, and so much of its politic and its strategic policy comes out of Sydney. Brian Gregg from Just Equal, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Brian Gregg there, joining us from Bustleton in Western Australia. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Jim. 
Jim there. It's amazing. You are on Indian Face on 3CR with James. Joined by Ben Anderson, whose puppetry show, Wake, is showing at La Mama Courthouse from November 28 to 30. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really, really amazing what you're doing with Wake. Tell us all about it. Sure. So um, Wake is a puppetry show um, about a conspiracy theorist. So... Uh, personally, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't really, I'm not, not really interested in that sort of thing. Um, but I am very interested in people who uh, do believe in uh, different conspiracies. Um, but also, I think more to the point, I'm interested in the way that we uh, value our own beliefs over relationships with people. So, and the way that sometimes we we put our beliefs ahead of. Um, ahead of other people around us. So, you know, conspiracy theories, I think, are the extreme end of that. But, um, you know, I've also experienced, um, you know, when, like, personally, I'm I'm a gay man, and um, sometimes that means that uh, someone's beliefs uh, prevent them from having a relationship with me, like people in my family who uh, decide that they're their belief that that's not the right thing is more important than having a relationship um, or down to like very small things like, uh, you know, having a fight with your partner over, you know, where to hang something on the wall and letting that get in the way of, of relationships. So, What a great way to explore conspiracy theories through puppetry, especially the kind of puppetry that you use, which is uh, from Japan and it's over 500 years old. Yeah, so so the, we use the term bunraku, um, which is a, a, a very very specific um, Japanese art form that's sort of five hundred years old. Um, it's a bit of a misnomer though because uh, it, we don't we don't use all of that that tradition. And it's a very specific thing. It's just the closest um, to to what we do. So bunraku puppets are they're they're essentially like dolls. So they they're they're operated by three people. So you have a sort of doll-sized thing operated by three people, one on the um, head and hand, one on the other hand and the waist, and one on the feet. It just means that you get a really realistic sort of um, movement, which can be really beautiful. And also incredibly visually appealing, because, I mean, that's your background, isn't it? Visual arts. Uh, and, in fact, I find it really interesting as well. You came to Melbourne from New Zealand to study uh, Clown and Mask with John Bolton. Did yeah. So, so my background is very much um, sort of spanning from uh, yeah visual arts. I've done uh, sort of what I like to call theatrical installations. Like one time, I, I did something for a, a festival called Art in the Dark, which is sort of like Vivid, I, I guess. Um, and that it was just supposed to be a light-based installation, but ended up turning it into um, the pink and white terraces, which were once upon a time. Uh, a feature in New Zealand. Um, it was what, the eighth wonder of the world sort of thing, but then it exploded um, because it was uh, uh, on a volcano. Um, and so we we made we sort of recreated that. So um, yeah, a lot of visual theatre, um, sorry, visual art, but also sort of moving into that sort of theatrical world. And then yeah, I studied clown and mask in Melbourne. That's why I moved here about six years ago. Um, and yeah, have have loved it and 
hasn't looked back. And what a great way to confront conspiracies, you know, by having that kind of clown and mask background, which is kind of a little bit what of, you know, this peddling of conspiracy theories is like. It's being pushed by clowns wearing masks, you know, lights and, and you know, mirrors and kind of, you know, deflection from the truth. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's interesting um, finding all of those parallels between not not just the content but the form of it as well. So that's something we often think about when we've got three people surrounding a tiny puppet controlling it. And uh, I don't know, there's just something really, there's something quite fun in that, like playing with the idea of like, well, actually, we are being very much um, coerced. I mean, I don't think we've been controlled. I think we've been coerced all the time. I mean, um, you know, I, I tend to... I tend to panic a little more about whatever is, happens to be in the news at the time, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't have been panicking about it sooner or that I necessarily should panic about it now. It's, it's something I notice I do, and I imagine a lot of us do. It sounds like you really checked in with yourself and you're not afraid to actually you know, confront these issues by, by using your own personal experiences as a vehicle. No, well, I think I think that's important. I, I think there has to be that authentic connection. I mean, there's uh, there's always a risk of something becoming therapy on stage, which is, um, you know, if, if you, you know when you're watching it, and it's it's never a good time. But I I think the the flip side of that is actually what we do want is authenticity and sharing that. So I think that's what makes a difference is is you know revealing a bit about yourself and and being vulnerable um, by actually doing that in a way that shares something important with other people so that they can go, yeah, me too. It's interesting how you said before that you don't think we're being controlled because that taps into one of the lines in the publicity for Wake which says that it probes at the frightening and paralysing truth of all things and that no one's in control. I think this is the thing. I think that, you know, we, we like to feel like it's, it's almost like we like to feel like we're being controlled because then at the very least someone's in control and we'd rather that than no one. And I, I think the reality is that the, um, the, no one's in control. Um, there's an Ellen Moore quote, which is no one's in control, the world is rudderless. And I, I think that's a, a really fascinating idea. But it's, I think if you lean into it, then it's actually quite a freeing idea as well that, you know, there, there isn't, there isn't um, anyone in control. We are just sort of free to do as we please, despite, you know, there's, even if there's not people doing um, bad things, there's, there's always going to be, you know, natural disasters and that sort of thing. So we're always going to find ourselves um, in um, adverse situations Um but I, th- I think coming to terms with that is the, is the key thing. Your publicity material also says that God is a 16-year-old high school student and we're an experiment. Tell us about that in Wake. So to explore conspiracy, as conspiracy theorist, I needed a conspiracy theory and I wasn't really interested in using something that existed. So I made one up, which is um, that not, the world is flat. That's a common one. But not only is the world flat, it's actually a petri dish, and we're just a um, microbial colony, um, and uh, we're uh, we're actually just a science experiment, 
um, by a, a 16-year-old um, biology student who's trying to get an A-plus in biology. Um, and the, the, the main character of the play, they basically, that's the theory that they've come up with. Um, and, uh, and then we're also being put to sleep at night, and that's why things like sleep paralysis exist, so that um, it just keeps you down because they have to take the lid off the Petri dish at night so that, um, for, for whatever reason, and um, that means that we can escape. So his drive is basically, I need to get up into the air, into the sky, and get out of this Petri dish. Um, and I must say, coming up with conspiracy theories is a, it's an odd exper- experience when you start making all of the connections. And that's how things like QAnon exist. They just, they just put out a few different ideas and then say nothing about it. And we just naturally want to make those connections. And thus the, the theory is born. This show really does bring out your quirkier side because let's not forget it's all done through puppets. Yeah, I, th- I think I think the perfect kind of theatre for me is something that is all at once beautiful, funny, sad, and true. I think if you if you tick all those four boxes, um, you're doing well. And when I think about all of the kinds of shows that, that I've really loved in the past, they always tick those four boxes, and. Um, yeah, I think puppetry is a really, really great way to do that. I think it's um, it, puppets are fun to watch, um, but they're also able to puppets and mask and and clown and that that sort of world of of theatre. Those those things are able to say more about our humanity than we can ourselves. I think because they're sort of a step removed, uh, we're actually more willing to go there and hear really harsh ideas um, but still feel comfortable and safe doing it. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of why I do things that way. Tell us who made the puppets. I made the puppets. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, uh, which I'm, I'm starting to regret now because there's still a lot to be made. Um, and, you know, obviously we go into rehearsals um, throughout the day Evenings, I work full time on top of that, and then every every spare moment is uh, spent with a with a hot glue gun and some PVA. So, you know, it's it's fun, but it's it certainly takes its toll. Um, I, you know, I'll be able to sleep um, in December, I guess. And how many puppets are we talking about here? So there are three main puppets that are sort of the Raku style, but uh, there's all sorts of other visual theatre. I have to make a helium tank. Um, this is the thing is like you can't buy any of this stuff because it has to be made to scale so you've made small puppets well now every single prop that you use has to be made bespoke um, to match those puppets and who operates the puppets so we have a cast of um, eight puppeteers um, which is a lot but also when you consider that you need three people to operate one puppet um, uh, we find we run out of hands pretty quickly uh, so, so yeah, we've got we've got eight uh, very talented puppeteers um, who uh, bring to life the puppets and all of the other um, visual elements in the show. And they all do the voiceovers. Like, how many people are talking? So, there's two, there's three or four uh, speaking characters, two main speaking characters, um, and uh, yeah, two two of those people will be will be doing the uh, 
the speaking parts as well as operating puppets, as, as well as there, there'll be um, the, the ensemble um, sing as well. So there'll be uh, a cappella music um, throughout the show to sort of score it. And yeah, so they've, they've got a lot, lot going on. Well, Ben Anderson, now your show Wake at La Mama Courthouse in Carlton sounds absolutely extraordinary. It's running from November 28 to 30. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. It sounds terrific. Thanks for having me. Ben Anderson there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here are the Cold War Kids. Kids there with Jailbirds. I am honoured to have the cabaret performer and actor Bradley Storer in the studio. <laughs> oh, the honour is all mine. Thank you for having me today. We have spoken so many times via the internet, our recorded interviews I'm over s- the phone, and now finally you're here at 3CR. I know. Finally, the long-awaited conclusion to the trilogy, live and in person. <laughs> 
You are the Dark Princeling of Melbourne's cabaret. You yes. did Dark Prince, which I was fortunate to see yes. at Hairhole. Oh, yes. I don't think I've, I've actually had the chance to see you since then, so I'd love to hear your opinion in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, well, I hope it, I hope it's good otherwise. <laughs> look, I've got to say, what really, really surprised me was, I mean, I knew how good your voice was, but to hear it live took my impression and perception to a different level. Uh, the range of material you sang was quite extraordinary and what jumped out to me was that you really should be the lead singer of a glam rock band (laughs) oh that would be heavenly yeah that would be wonderful oh i said i did not know even i had did not know i even had that desire till you said now i'm just like that would be good yeah Um, but yes thank you i guess thank you so much for coming along yes thank you for the lovely compliments that was oh yeah that was such a wonderful show to do and i had a wonderful collaborator david butler uh aka uh, cabaret drag provocateur peppy schmears um yeah that was such a wonderful experience again at the hair hole um for anyone who didn't see it it was just a little dark meditation on (laughs) the last few years we've had and kind of situation we're all in now and it was a oh let's see there was arcade fire there was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. There was, um, that was just in the first five minutes, too. Um, let's see, uh, Bob Dylan. There was Nick Cave, Kamala Heidke. Yeah, great. So, so much repertoire. <laughs> there was quite a range. <laughs> You're always working on something. What's in the pipeline? Yes. Oh, gosh, I just came off. You've actually caught me when I've just come off the back of some things, which has been, I've been, yeah, I've chock a block the last few weeks. It's that way with gigs. It's just like there'll be nothing for months and then all of mine are crammed into the same three-week period. <laughs> Um, so I was lucky enough that I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got to go up to regional Victoria for, uh, I performed for a wonderful regional queer organization called, uh, Line Wangaratta earlier this year. It's part of a fundraiser they were having for their, uh, for their program and outreach efforts. Um, and they, I just did a 15 minute set there and they were very lovely and asked me back for a full show, which I was very flattered by. So yeah, I went back to do that. Yeah. About two, probably two or three weeks ago now. Um, and it's very but meaningful to me because it's the area that I grew up in. So I'm from Benalla, which is just up the road from Wangaratta. Um, and then, uh, David, who was in, uh, guys as Peppy Schmears came along as well. And, uh, Peppy is also from uh, rural Tasmania. So, and it was, uh, in addition to doing the show, which was wonderful, I I did a, uh, some of the material from Dark Prince, but then a lot of some material from my old show Trickster and from stuff that I've done over the years, which was lovely. Some of them I hadn't touched in so long, so it was doing it again. I was just like, oh, this has all changed a lot since I last did it, just internally. I'm just like, oh, I'm a different person and performer now. So that was wonderful. But um, in addition to all that lovely stuff, it was um had the chance to yeah perform for regional queer people um, and just being able to help because it was a fundraiser for a regional pride hub, which is now, I think, officially on the go, uh, uh, but is on the way, which is wonderful. But I'm um, yeah, just an opportunity to go back to where I came from and help to contribute to the space that perhaps wasn't there when I was a young queer person. So, um, yeah, no, so that was lovely. Yeah. What a triumphant return. I know. <laughs> So then, um, and then the next uh, the next week after that, I was lucky enough to perform for the uh, Clock Tower Cabaret program over in Mooney Ponds, uh, which love lovely venue, the Clock Tower Centre. Um, I was uh, I was very lucky because in their program, I was uh, I was billed above uh, musical theatre star Lucy Dirac during her Morning Melodies show. So I was just like, oh, I finally got billed above Lucy. I'm just like, I'm a career apex. Um, uh, and so, but doing the show there, I talked about. <laughs> 
Because uh, that show had a little bit of a theme because it was uh, just in the show I was mentioning like a lot of the material I was doing. Um, some like some of it came from when I was younger. Like I did uh, "Constant Craving" by Katie Lang because the first time oh, I ever I heard that. that, love a queer classic, and the first time I'd ever heard that was on Australian Idol. <laughs> so it was very funny. I told a little bit of a story about that, um, and then another set I did was all uh, music that was either written during inspired by or in Europe around the same time as um written during the Weimar period of German history because I do tout myself as a Weimar cabaret performer. Um do I often do material that's from the Weimar period? Not often. So I did an entire because it was split into three sets, my entire middle one was all works either from the Weimar era or inspired by or done in the style of Weimar, uh, which was wonderful. And I talked about uh, connections to Weimar performers that I'd been, uh, that I'd known in my life. And then the final set I did talk about going back to regional Victoria. <laughs> I actually said in the show, I'm just like, oh no, did this end up being the point of the show? It was going back. I was just like, I went back to where I started in Triumph. I'm just like, oh God, I hate shows with a point. I always accidentally end up with one. <laughs> what a great basis though. I, mean, I know, it was Weimar, very handy. Cabaret has um, given you this kind of, you know, wonderful grounding to go into all these eclectic directions. Mm-hmm. Why do you love Weimar Cabaret so much? I just, yeah, it is something that's instinctually within me. Um, oh, yes, it's uh, just so wonderful. Um, you can't tell I'm being ironic. But, um, no, no, it's just something in me reaches out to that style because what, uh, off, like, even what I found with the Weimar material I did for Clock Tower, one of the songs was called uh, The Ballad of Paragraph 86. It was written by Brecht and one of his early collaborators, not Kurt Weill. It was done in the 1920s and it was written at a time... Um, when Germany had just, uh, like, made abortion illegal. And the song was about a woman going to a doctor begging for but an abortion because, and the reason, the reason she lists her, I have no place to live, my husband has no job, we cannot take care of a baby. And the doctor but just says, oh, no, you're going to... He's just like, well, it's not about what you need. The state needs people to run the machines. We need cannon fodder for the army. So it's like, you're having the baby and it doesn't matter. Uh, which I'm just like, that is... Still very shockingly relevant, like for the exact same reasons in the way that, yeah, uh, often that uh, lack of access to uh, family planning and things like that, uh, like it's, but you know, very, uh, very terrible for like, but impoverished and disadvantaged families and for families of colour, like to but unfortunately have to keep them in cycles of poverty by making sure they have so many children and can't support all of them. Um, so it's like, that was written in the 1920s and yet still 80 years, like 80 to 90 years onwards, it's still incredibly relevant. Um, so yeah, it's like going back, finding those resonances and just I just, like for me personally also, I think it's just, I love a good dark story, which a lot of those those songs are, they have some incredibly dark stories. Uh, for one of them was, yeah, like, for example, I did a Jacques Brel song uh, who was uh, a French writer, wasn't necessarily a Weimar writer, but a song he wrote called Next, which was um, a song about a soldier who went to a very young soldier who went to war, and at the time uh, part of the package was you were given access to sex workers um, as part of the like army's little but like uh, in an army truck basically talks, and it's about him. <laughs> no, t- it's terrible in here, but. It's about him slowly losing his mind because he's contracted gonorrhea and it's destroyed his brain. Um, yeah, so I, very, very dark story. Incredible song. Um, yeah, yeah, so I just, but I just love that material. I don't know why. Well, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because there's so many, there's so many kind of points of relevance to today, you know, in terms of we live in this great cultural city, there's so much diversity, mm-hmm. but we're kind of heading towards this darkness politically, it seems, potentially. Mm-hmm. 
Mm, Certainly in other countries. Yep, where we start to slide back towards fascism, you know. (sighs) Exactly. So I could really see why your love for Weimar, you know, cabaret, is kind of feeling relevant and gives you a great springboard for other stuff. Mm-hmm, indeed. Oh, gosh. You love the stage, <laughs> don't you? Oh, I do love the stage. In fact, uh, just before I came in today, I was doing oh, I was doing a week-long workshop doing music theatre repertoire, which is lovely. Hadn't had a chance to do that for a while. I'm just like, oh, I miss doing that, which is a bit more, oh, but not so. But with my Weimar stuff, it can be quite crazy, whereas this one's a little bit more grounded, a little bit more. But, yeah. And so I'm just like, I just love any opportunity to just get up there and just do stuff. <laughs> it's interesting because when we first spoke, you were really kind of, you know, I guess, transitioning into serious theatre, you know, oh, in terms of that's acting. Right, yes. You know, you did that great D.L. Turnbull production. Yep, uh, early uh, days. And I'd just come off the back of doing uh, Creatrix Tiara's uh, work, Queer Lady Magician. Creatrix Tiara does send her love as well. Uh, excuse me, sends their love. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, now we've. Uh, Post-COVID, it's now starting to, yeah, get back into, yeah, serious dramatic work because I am, if you cannot tell from my voice, a serious dramatic actor. And, of course, you did <laughs> Sense and Sensibility with yes, Jane Austen under the belt. that's right. I did that earlier this year, which was a lot of fun. Also, I've got to play a... But, Technical romantic lead, and but doing the indented fingers here for people at home. Um, yes, no, which was a, a lovely opportunity as well, working with the uh, director and writer Shamina Kumar. Um, yeah, that was a wonderful experience, and working with uh, yeah a lot of music theatre people as well. Yeah. So, what is the play that you would love to do? I mean, you're so Ooh. into you know, like mm-hmm. you know, theatre. Is yeah. there a play, a role that you would love to? <gasps> Do. Well, I was going to say, well, D.L. Turnbull and I have been discussing because uh, I have been in talks. Uh, I think we would, but we'd just seen a recent uh, adaptation of Medea and I was talking to D.L. about how much I would love to do a Greek tragedy, but do it as a one-person show where I played all the characters. Um, so we're in discussion about that at the moment. It could potentially be uh, Euripides of the Bacchae, because um, it's also one of my favourite Greek tragedies. Um, but yeah, that could potentially be in the future, but for things that have... or I've already been made. Um, well, I was having this discussion earlier today. My favourite musical to be in would be Sweeney Todd. It's one, very close to my heart. And so like, I don't care what part I'd have in it. I'm just like, I just want to be in it. It's just there's no bad parts in it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, that's what I think of immediately. I'm very excited to hear about the collaboration with D.L. Turnbull, who's not afraid to confront tough <laughs> issues, but also isn't afraid to turn existing stuff on their heads by the sound of it. If you're doing kind of like an original interpretation of Medea, that's very exciting. Yes, it's, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, we'd both seen a, a recent interpretation of Medea and just that had been a springboard for us then go up. Because I yeah, just said, I've always wanted to do a Greek tragedy because back when I was doing my, my bachelor's, I did study a lot of Greek tragedy, which I love. Because it is the pre, because Greek tragedy itself was the precursor to opera because it was a form where you had, you had lyrical uh, dialogue and then uh, proclamatory dialogue, so spoken going into sung. Um, and then there were certain, in Aeschylus, like his, not his first tragedy, but his only surviving one, uh, Agamemnon, uh, the character of Cassandra moves between lyrical and declamatory speech, which is very similar to how modern music theatre moves from spoken word to singing. Um, so it goes, so my, I'm just like, oh, well, it's really but music theatre in a sense, in a way. And then, of course, Greek tragedy then led into opera, which there, because there was an interpretation by scholars who said, oh, well, it's all meant to be sung through, so then... Then it became opera, became the next step, and then opera led into modern-day music theatre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you sing every day? Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
I do like not often, like not often, like thinking about it. But I'll just be si- either if I'm at work or I'm at home, I will just be singing away to myself to some something or other. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be making noise every day, definitely. <laughs> Were you one of those kids that was always singing, and your parents just went, "We've got to get this kid into theatre." <laughs> I think so. Yeah, they just hear me around the house. They'd be just like. Yeah, pretty much. They'd just be side-eyeing going and just like, I think this is going to be a reoccurring theme. <laughs> and were you one of those kids that was always in the school production and always, you know, even yes. in the school production that was an elective in high school? Were yes, you always... I was. Oh, yes. Because I did start out as an instrumentalist, but unfortunately. But what, you did? What... what was your instrument? Oh, well, I played violin, I played piano and clarinet at different points. Unfortunately, because uh, when I get on stage and when I'm adrenalised, the first place I get the, it shows up is in shaking hands, so it makes instrumental not perhaps ideal so then when I got to voice that was a bit that, that was the one that ended up sticking but um you don't know when I was back in high school and at primary school yes I was in all the productions as well <laughs> you just said the word adrenalized and that mm. is really interesting because your shows are very physical you move around a lot I do I Yes, thank you for saying that because I do I do try and aim to keep things quite moving all the time because, well, one of my things is I just never really, unless for a very specific moment, I don't want to really be entirely still. I would like to keep, because one of my inspirations is, of course, the wonderful Ruben Kay, who's another another Melbourne-based cabaret performer who's now internationally renowned, who's incredibly physical. And if you ever see Ruben perform as also a trained dancer, so it's like high kicking all the time, is constantly in motion. Um, and so one of my inspirations is I do like the... Feeling of constantly in motion, not like frenetic necessarily or unnecessarily, but just yeah, a good help, good sense that I could always be coming at you if necessary. And, and for, for yeah. listeners who obviously can't see, you practically just did a high <laughs> kick in the studio as you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I'm wearing my stretchy pants today. <laughs> uh, but yes, but yeah, but, um, yeah, and then but of course in the moments, for example, like during I said during Dark Prince, I had uh, two songs, one by Kate Miller Heike and one by Nick Cave, which I basically just delivered stock still um so just so in those moments where i'm completely still and delivering the text that's when if it's been moving around and the entire time then those moments really land the moments where it's just more yeah where it's more centered and more still yeah and you love to use lights as well and costume changes uh-huh, yes in that show the costume changes because i said in dark prince they ended up being about four or five costume changes. Those did not come in until the last week, and that's just because um, the lighting changes were wonderful. Um, but I was just like, well, in terms of our resources here, we don't have a ton. But I said, so I want to try and give the audience a lot of bang for their buck and also just keep the action, that give a sense that there is something changing in between a lot of these things. So, yeah, I decided, I'm like, well, I have all these costumes that I've just kind of but stockpiled during lockdown. So I'm like, maybe I can find some way to use these. And then uh, the way I did it was I started out in one and then it turns out I had all of the other costumes laid on underneath so it was this continuous reveal to the audience <laughs> I'm very excited about Medea and my kind of you know crystal ball kind of you know visionary uh-uh. thing is thinking there's going to be a production over the next 12 months I hope so yeah yeah but probably won't be Medea it'll be we're thinking yeah but also another production by Euripides called The Bakai which is his last tragedy before he wrote it in exile and it was his, his last surviving one before he passed away but it's a very it's been done the most recent production I can think of was actually starred Alan Cumming um, so another big cabaret music theatre person um, but yeah just because it's a story that's about the the Greek god Dionysus who's the not only the god of, a god of wine 
is also the god of theatre and the god of the frenzy, so of the destruction of binaries, the... Yeah, and like in classical Greek theory, like there's the idea of the Apollonian and the Dionysian, which are the central binaries that are fighting in a Greek tragedy trying to take dominance. Um, so when you actually have the character Dionysus in a play, it's very... Yeah, it's just like, oh, that's a big offer. Um, and yeah, and just the idea I think we were thinking about was, of course, Dionysus as the blurrer and the disintegrator of boundaries means that, yeah, starting off as Dionysus and transforming into all the other characters as well. I think that's going to be our springboard. I can't promise anything, but that's, we'll see what happens. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bradley Store, it is fantastic to meet you and have you in the studio. Very exciting times ahead. Thank you so much for coming to 3CR. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yes, yeah, for, for happy to be here in person. <laughs> and we're going to play a track that you covered during Dark Prince. Oh, yes. Uh, I loved your performance of this. It's Patty Smith's Because <gasps> the Night. Ah. Uh...
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.